This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. Belderg by Seamus Heaney. They just keep turning up and were thought of as foreign. One-eyed and benign, they lie about his house, cairn stones out of a bog. To lift the lid of the peat and find this pupil dreaming of Neolithic wheat. When he stripped off blanket bog, the soft-piled centuries fell open like a glib. There were the first plow marks, the Stone Age fields, the tomb corbelled, turfed, and chambered, floored with dry turf coom. A landscape fossilized, its stone wall patternings repeated before our eyes in the stone walls of Mayo. Before I turned to go, he talked about persistence, a congruence of lives, how stubbed and cleared of stones his home accrued growth rings of iron, flint, and bronze. So I talked of Mossbon, a bogland name, but Moss? He crossed my old home's music with older strains of Norse. I'd told how its foundation was mutable as sound, and how I could derive the forked root from that ground, make Bon an English fort, a planter's walled-in mound, or else find sanctuary and think of it as Irish, persistent, if outworn. But the Norse ring on your tree I passed through the eye of the cairn, grist to an ancient mill, and in my mind's eye saw a world tree of balanced stones, cairns piled like vertebrae, the marrow crushed to grounds. Funeral Rites by Seamus Heaney I shouldered a kind of manhood, stepping in to lift the coffins of dead relations. They had been laid out in tainted rooms, their eyelids glistening, their dull white hands shackled in rosary beads. 
their puffed knuckles head unwrinkled. The nails were dark and the wrists obediently sloped. The dulse brown shroud, the quilted satin cribs. I knelt courteously, admiring it all, as wax melted down and veined the candles, the flames hovering to the women hovering behind me. And always in a corner, the coffin lid, its nail heads dressed with little gleaming crosses. Dear soapstone masks, kissing their igloo brows, had to suffice before the nails were sunk and the black glacier of each funeral pushed away. Now, as news comes in of each neighborly murder, we pine for ceremony, customary rhythms, the temperate footsteps of a cortege winding past each blinded home. I would restore the great chambers of Boyne, prepare a sepulchre under the cup-marked stones. Out of side streets and by-roads, purring family cars, nose into line, the whole country tunes to the muffled drumming of ten thousand engines. Somnambulant women left behind move through emptied kitchens, imagining our slow triumph toward the mounds. Quiet as a serpent in its grassy boulevard, the procession drags its tail out of the gap of the north as its head already enters the megalithic doorway. When they have put the stone back in its mouth, we will drive north again past Strang and Carling Fjords, the cud of memory allayed for once, arbitration of the feud placated, imagining those under the hill disposed like Gunnar, who lay beautiful inside his burial mound, though dead by violence and unavenged. Men said that he was chanting verses about honor, and that four lights burned in corners of the chamber, which opened then as he turned with a joyful face to look at the moon. Bog Queen by Seamus Heaney I lay waiting between turf face and demine wall, between heathery levels and glass-toothed stone. My body was braille for the creeping influences. Dawn suns groped over my head and cooled at my feet. Through my fabrics and skins, the seeps of winter digested me. The illiterate roots pondered and died in the cavings of stomach and socket. I lay waiting on the gravel bottom, my brain darkening, a jar of spawn 
fermenting underground, dreams of Baltic amber, bruised berries under my nails, the vital hoard reducing in the crock of the pelvis. My diadem grew carious, gemstones dropped and the peat flow like the bearings of history. My sash was a black glacier, wrinkling dyed weaves and Phoenician stitchwork, redded on my breast's soft moraines. I knew winter cold like the nuzzle of fjords at my thighs, the soaked fledge, the heavy swaddle of hides. My skull hibernated in the wet nest of my hair, which they robbed. I was barbered and stripped by a turf-cutter spade, who veiled me again and packed coom softly between the stone jams at my head and my feet, till a peer's wife bribed him. The plate of my hair, a slimy birth-cord of bog, had been cut, and I rose from the dark, hacked bone, skull-ware, frayed stitches, tufts, small gleams on the bank. The Grabal Man by Seamus Heaney As if he had been poured in tar, he lies on a pillow of turf and seems to weep the black river of himself. The grain of his wrists is like bog oak, the ball of his heel like a basalt egg. His instep has shrunk cold as a swan's foot or a wet swamp root. His hips are the ridge and purse of a muscle, his spine and eel arrested under a glisten of mud. The head lifts, the chin as a visor, raised above the vent of his slashed throat that has tanned and toughened. The cured wound opens inward to a dark, elderberry place. Who will say corpse to his vivid cast? Who will say body to his opaque repose? And his rusted hair, a mat unlikely as a fetus's. I first saw his twisted face in a photograph, a head and shoulder out of the peat bruised like a forceps baby. But now he lies, perfected in my memory, down to the red horn of his nails, hung in the scales with beauty and atrocity. With the dying gall too strictly compassed on his shield, with the actual weight of each hooded victim, slashed and dumped.
Punishment by Seamus Heaney I can feel the tug of the halter at the nape of her neck, the wind on her naked front. It blows her nipples to amber beads. It shakes the frail rigging of her ribs. I can see her drowned body in the bog, the weighing stone, the floating rods and boughs, under which at first she was a barked sapling that has dug up oak bone, brain, firkin, her shaved head like a stubble of black corn, her blindfold a soiled bandage, her noose a ring to store the memories of love. Little adulteress, before they punished you, you were flaxen-haired, undernourished, and your tar-black face was beautiful. My poor scapegoat, I almost love you, but would have cast, I know, the stones of silence. I am the artful voyeur of your brain's exposed and darkened combs your muscles webbing in all your numbered bones. I, who have stood dumb when your betraying sisters, called in tar, wept by the railings, who would connive in civilized outrage, yet understand the exact and tribal intimate revenge. Strange Fruit by Seamus Heaney Here is the girl's head like an exhumed gourd, oval-faced, prune-skinned, prune-stones for teeth. They unswaddled the wet fern of her hair and made an exhibition of its coil, let the air at her leathery beauty. Pash of tallow perishable treasure. Her broken nose is dark as a turf clod. Her eye-holes blank as pools in the old workings. Diodorus Siculus confessed his gradual ease with the likes of this murdered, forgotten, nameless, terrible, beheaded girl, out-staring acts and beatification out-staring what had begun to feel like reverence. Kinship by Seamus Heaney Kinned by hieroglyphic peat on a spread field to the strangled victim, the love nest in the bracken, I step through origins like a dog, turning its memories of wilderness and the kitchen mat. The bog floor shakes water cheeps and lisps as I walk down rushes and heather. I love this tough face, its black incisions 
the cooped secrets of process and ritual. I love the spring off the ground, each bank a gallows drop, each open pool the unstopped mouth of an urn, a moon drinker, not to be sounded by the naked eye. Quagmire, Swampland, Morass, the Slime Kingdoms, Domains of the Cold-Blooded, of Mud Pads and Dirty Eggs, but Bog, meaning soft, the fall of windless rain, pupil of amber, ruminant ground, digestion of mollusk and seed pod, deep pollen bin, earth pantry, bone vault, sunbank, and balmer of votive gods and sabred fugitives, insatiable bride, sword swallower, casket, midden, flow of history, ground that will strip its dark side, nesting ground, out back of my mind. I found a turf spade hidden under bracken, laid flat, and overgrown with a green fog. As I raised it, the soft lips of the growth muttered and split, a tawny rut opening at my feet like a shed skin the shaft wettish as I sank it upright and beginning to steam in the sun. And now they have twinned that obelisk. Among the stones under a beaded cairn a love-nest is disturbed. Catkin and bog-cotton tremble as they raise up the cloven oak limb. I stand at the edge of centuries facing a goddess. This center holds and spreads, sump and seedbed, a bag of waters and a melting grave. The mothers of autumn sour and sink, ferments of husk and leaf deep in their ochres. Mosses come to a head, heather unseeds, brackens deposit their bronze. This is the vowel of earth dreaming its root in flowers and snow, mutation of weathers and seasons, a windfall composing the floor it rots into. I grew out of all this like a weeping willow inclined to the appetites of gravity. The hand-carved fellows of the turf cart wheels buried in a litter of turf mold, the cupid's bow of the tailboard, the socketed lips of the cribs. I deified the man who rode there, god of the wagon, the hearth feeder. I was his privileged attendant, a bearer of bread and drink, the squire of his circuits. When summer died and wives forsook the fields, we were abroad, saluted, given right of way. Watch our progress down the hall-lit hedges, my manly pride, when he speaks to me. And you, Tacitus, 
Observe how I make my grove on an old cranog, piled by the fearful dead. A desolate peace. Our mother ground is sour with the blood of her faithful. They lie gargling in her sacred heart as the legions stare from the ramparts. Come back to this island of the ocean, where nothing will suffice. Read the inhumed faces of casualty, of victim. Report us fairly how we slaughter for the common good and shave the heads of the notorious, how the goddess swallows our love and terror. Before hearing what Seamus Heaney had to say about his 1975 book, North, I think it's worthwhile to take a historic uh, detour into the world of the bog bodies, which uh, fills so much of that book and which is still, uh, I don't want to say attractive, but uh, uh, mysterious and uh, sort of magnetic subject for anyone who has looked into it. Um, there are a handful of books that are worth looking at here. The first, obviously, is uh, the one that inspired Heaney from uh, 19... what is it? From 1969, P.V. Globs, The Bog People, Iron Age Man Preserved. And that book is filled with wonderful photographs as well as... Uh, um, I guess a text that uh, most archaeologists now wouldn't quite support with all the theories in it, but it is uh, still worth reading if you're interested in seeing where Heaney got his ideas and where he jumped off from. Uh, one of the things that is uh, that we have to be wary of in, in writing my own poems about the bog bodies uh, I realized that in the same book I was also writing uh, poems about the Ice Age uh, painted caves in France and Spain, and it is um, not really worthwhile to throw a huge theory over what uh, a subject quote-unquote cave paintings meant, uh, what the symbols meant and all of that. It's not worth creating a huge theory to explain all of it simply because uh, the paintings took place uh, in different areas and over huge uh, swaths of time. In the case of the uh, Ice Age paintings, I believe uh, anywhere from 40,000 BCE all the way up to uh, 15,000. So th there's no point in uh, trying to explain them all in one big swoop, and I don't think there's really any point in trying to do the same thing with the bog bodies either. Uh, while they don't cover such a huge, uh, such a huge swath of time like the painted caves do, uh, most archaeologists seem to put the uh, the vogue for bog bodies somewhere between 600 BC and AD uh, 600 or 800 or 900, um, 
and it's all across northern Europe, and it is enough variety of place and time to, again, where I, I don't think it's possible to to look at one of the bog bodies, uh, or even a handful of them, and use use the observations of those to explain the entire phenomenon. Um, I wanted to read from, from two books. Uh, the first is from uh, uh, Winyan van der Sanden's Through Nature to Eternity, The Bog Bodies of Northwest Europe, uh, which seems to be the successor of Glob's book. Uh, it's immensely detailed um, and is also just a, a wonderful read. And I just wanted to give a sense of what he has to say about it uh, near the end of the book. Uh, he says, um, some present-day archaeologists support the view proposed by another archaeologist named Struve, according to which there is a distinct difference between the isolated bog bodies and those bodies that were associated with animal bones, pottery, weapons, wheels, wooden figures, and other objects. That the bodies of the latter group are to be seen as human sacrifices, they do not doubt, but they are of the opinion that this explanation does not hold for the isolated bog bodies. A Danish archaeologist, for example, believes that the bog bodies, quote, proper, must have an entirely different meaning, and she points out that Tacitus and later authors indeed speak of human sacrifices, but they do not specify that the sacrificed bodies were deposited in bogs. In their opinion, the scarcity of the bodies of children is also inconsistent with the sacrifice theory because children are reasonably well represented in the other group of bog bodies. Her explanation of the meaning of bog bodies revolves around the passage referring to the uh, a passage in Tacitus's Germania in which she believes that the passage applies not only to men, but also to women. This archaeologist also supports her punishment theory with the argument that the nakedness and cropped hair that have been observed in so many cases are both signs of disgrace. And if you've listened to my reading of Heaney's poems about uh, the bog bodies, you will remember uh, the humiliation that is involved in at least two or three uh, of the poems, especially the one that is simply called Punishment. Uh, three other uh, archaeologists are also of the opinion that the isolated bog bodies represent punished individuals. They emphasize the wide diversity uh, of this group. In the case of ritual practices, one would expect a far more stereotyped pattern. What they see are signs of cruelty, humiliation, and disgrace, which can, in their eyes, have nothing to do with ritual practices. Not really sure why you would assume that those things can't have anything to do with ritual practice. Uh, but anyhow, they believe that the cases of overkill uh, point to collective action, to murder committed by a group of individuals. As for the sticks that have been found in association with many bog bodies, um, these are simply the clubs that were used to hit the victims or to beat them to death. The victims' legs were broken to ensure that they would not try to escape punishment, and their burial in the bog symbolized their exclusion from society. Um, 
And we can see there that uh, uh, one of the major theories is that it is a form of punishment. Uh, Heaney's poem has one of the bog bodies being, uh, I believe his words are, uh, a little adulteress. Uh, the other assumption is that they are criminals in the sense that we would understand today, or they are social, um, they commit social acts uh, that uh, the society of the time uh, did not approve of. Uh, but as is mentioned here, the there are also children included in this, and it's hard to think of uh, children being doing something uh, so criminally horrible as to uh, require them to be punished in this way. Um, and it's hard to think of them as uh, committing uh, social violations that would cause this as well. Uh, there are also cases where the uh, were the victims of the bog bodies, uh, were, were the, the victims themselves. Um, it, well, it should be said first, uh, for those who aren't aware of, of this, that the, the, the main attraction to the bog bodies, the main peculiarity of them, is that their bodies were thrown in these bogs and they're dug up some 2,500, 2,000 years later and you can recognize their faces. Uh, I believe Glob has a story where it says, uh, if one of these people were a, uh, uh, a suspect in a crime, you would still be able to take their fingerprints. Uh, you, you can, uh, you can, all you have to really do is look at a picture of the Tolland man, and it is a person. All of their features remain, and so it's, become easy to tell that uh, some of the victims of this violence uh, were not prone to uh, working very much. And if you're thinking of an agricultural society, you think that maybe this is uh, a higher class sort of person. Um, the other idea is that uh, some of them were, were fed sort of, to our mind, inedible last meals that also included hallucinogenic drugs. Um, but I'm not, as far as I can tell, I'm not aware of any of these cases that where all of these features sort of coalesce into just one case so that it's all just, uh, the, the connection is that they were thrown into a bog and, uh, the answer as to why is, uh, still unknown. Uh, van der Sanden does mention this, um, from historical sources and archaeological evidence, we may infer that, in the past, watery places like bogs, lakes, springs, and rivers had a special magico-religious meaning in large parts of Europe. Classical authors like Strabo tell us that the Gauls deposited large quantities of gold and silver in sacred lakes as votive offerings to their gods, and that river valleys, lakes, and bogs have yielded many archaeological finds besides bog bodies. And of course, that is true. There's uh, uh, bent weapons, weapons that have uh, been made useless, have been uh, uh, found there, coins, hordes of coins, and all the rest. Um, but the assumption seems to be that uh, something else is going on with depositing human beings in a place like this. Uh, after torturing them uh, ritualistically uh, 
and uh, almost torturing them to death uh, or bringing them to the brink of death through many different forms of torture and violence until they are finally killed. Um, one of the other theories, and this is true uh, not just of the, the finds of children who have been found in the bogs, but of adults as well, is that many of them suffer from uh, illnesses or physical abnormalities. Uh, for instance, it is said uh, that one of them suffered from arthritis in his lower thoracic and lumbar vertebra. Another had an extra thumb, uh, smaller than his real thumb. Uh, stomach was infested with whipworm. Um, another had uh, scoliosis. Um, there are instances where you can tell from x-rays that uh, uh, the individuals had uh, arrested growth during their youth. Um, let's see. Uh, one of the girls who was uh, who was dug up, uh, one of the bog body victims, the girl's sacrum is asymmetrical in particular where it touches the two halves of her pelvis, and the issue of her foot near her right big toe was found to be swollen, while the toe next to it appeared to be a callus. This suggests that the weight of the right half of her body rested unproportionately heavily on these two toes, and on and on. Uh, the assumption here is that uh, physical difference, physical abnormality can, uh, can especially in uh, ancient cultures like this, produce uh, two uh, extreme responses. The first is to, to think that such people uh, are magical somehow, that their bodies have become uh, limited, as it were, uh, as to human action, because their minds, or perhaps even their supposedly flawed bodies, have a greater connection to the uh, world of the spirits, uh, the assumption, and I love this especially in the Greek story of the smith Hephaestus, the assumption that uh, people who do this strange kind of work, and I don't think it's a uh, coincidence that the idea of trolls or of these small strange people working in mines is connected with these things, uh, the assumption that, that, that these connections to to magic or to magical processes like uh, uh, like uh, like being a smith uh, should should be associated with uh, equally strange and uncanny and uh, bizarre looking or bizarre acting people. You can imagine that there's no way to tell if anybody here had any mental illness, but uh, uh, the general gist of shamanism seems to point to the fact of, uh, if, if not a strange body, then a strange mind as well. And the other side of that, which, uh, where on the one hand you get a special job, you're, you're thought of as weird, but you're given a special job, you're sort of held at arm's length, but it's assumed that you have a special connection to the gods. The other side of that is that you are somehow unlucky, and that, uh, this strangeness, this, uh, these infirmities uh, will uh, bring the wider community uh, bad luck. There are all the stories, whether in, uh, whether in the Hebrew Bible all the way up to 
the disfigurement uh, that the Byzantine kings uh, subjected their rivals to of disfiguring each other, where uh, someone who is disfigured is not allowed to be a king, someone who is disfigured is not allowed to be a priest, and so on. And so uh, another way of looking at it is that uh, the victims here um, were dispatched to perhaps the idea might be uh, of keeping whatever it is that disfigured them from disfiguring the rest of the community. Uh, a second bit that I wanted to read from comes from a, a really uh, incredible book by Timothy Taylor. It's called The Buried Soul, How Humans Invented Death. Uh, anyone who who finds what I'm about to read interesting at all should just simply seek out the book. I don't have enough time to to praise it enough here. But he has an entire chapter on the bog bodies, and he focuses first on the idea of multiple deaths, which uh, Ander Santon mentioned, um, and uh, this is what he has to say about them. Uh, a number of the people who ended up as bog bodies suffered, oh, and here he's quoting Ander Sandin, uh, a number of the people who ended up as bog bodies suffered, in van der Sanden's words, multiple deaths. One could go further and say that these people were put to death with minute attention to detail. To keep Lindau Mann alive for each cumulative assault required amazing skill and precision. A little more infected gruel and he would have been terminally poisoned. A slightly harder axe blow and he would have been dead and incapable of being garroted, a more systematic cutting of the throat, and he would have died almost instantaneously. Yet, even after throat cutting and garroting, he may have remained alive long enough to take a last drowning gulp in the bog. It seems that those who brought these people to their death tried to inflict as many insults as possible to their living bodies just short of denying them their recognizable identity. Humiliated by hair shaving and lack of clothes, made to eat dirt, poisoned, drugged, beaten, stabbed, strangled, drowned, the list goes on. As many kinds of death as possible were symbolically inflicted. It stopped short in nearly every case of obliterating personal features. One of the two Boromo's women is a potential exception, but even so, her face could have been pulped and was not. This stopping short, coupled with the extreme prejudice of the rest of the mode of termination, is highly significant. The souls of these bog people, even those who were decapitated, could still know their own faces and could see what had been done to them personally. And that goes back to what I mentioned before. You've just uh, do a Google image search of bog body faces, and you can uh, you can see these people. They, they still have their, you can still uh, see their Swabian knot uh, haircuts, uh, and the the one uh, female victim who was uh, blindfolded, uh, the blindfold is still fresh. It's just wrapped around her face. It's incredible, um, and he says. Um, 
uh, if, trans if transgressors judged guilty of capital crimes could not be sacrificed, why not execute them in a straightforward way? The problem again lies with the soul. If they were executed and given proper rites of burial, their punishment would be brief, as they would be reborn in the world of the dead. If they were not given proper burial, their souls would stay on earth, wandering and plaguing the living. The only solution was to place transgressors permanently in this liminal zone. Uh, if this theory about liminality is correct, that the bog bodies were sent not to another world but into limbo on these these liminal zones that are neither uh, watery nor land in this in this area of bog, then we should expect a rite of separation to be followed by a dramatic transitional rite with no subsequent incorporation. And this is sort of what he's getting to. Um, the idea of symbolic death. Symbolic, multiple death was cruelly vexing, bringing the victim to the point of death in several different ways. Simultaneously, it was designed to confuse the soul to such an extent that it did not know when or where to leave the body. The process of multiple death was designed to remove ownership, to keep the soul still physically incarnate, guessing about the body's death until it was too late. Uh, the identity of the body was preserved for itself, for the benefit of the body's own ghost. The maintenance of identity through the retention of facial features and then through the polysaccharide cold cooking of the bog helped ensure that the soul remained firmly attached to the body it had grown up with, and as the body did not rot, the soul remained in that limbo. And he says, uh, the final piece of the limbo theory now falls into place, for this was not the grand world of the dead, but the mysterious twilight world of the elves where they were sentenced. Beneath the skin of the wet, green, mossy blisters, the victims were first trapped and then enchanted and then beguiled with elfish music ringing forever in the ears which they had been so pointedly allowed to keep. Elves are not crucial players in grand cosmic schemes, and that was crucial. They and only they could guarantee exclusion from all that was socially important, living or dead. And that is a wonderful theory, but again, it does not explain everything. Uh, and I don't think that there is anything that can. I don't even think Heaney's poems do either, but they are a wonderful expression of uh, the mystery and the sadness and the brutality of the entire thing. Um, while I haven't read the book, my wife vouches for it that uh, a book published just a few years ago by Miranda Aldhouse Green called Bog Bodies Uncovered, Solving Europe's Ancient Mystery, is also supposed to be pretty good. And uh, I can vouch at least that the other books I read by Miranda Green are uh, very good too. So that's just uh, an historical background that I think is necessary for poems as uh, discomforting, I guess you would say, as Heaney's bog poems, especially as he ends up relating them and then regretting doing so to the violence uh, 
in Northern Ireland. So again, this is Seamus Heaney talking about his collection called North from the book called Stepping Stones, Interviews with Seamus Heaney by Dennis O'Driscoll. We are back onto our normal track. Um, let's see. Uh, O'Driscoll says, does it surprise you that rather than responding to the new life unfolding around you, that is, uh, if you remember last time, uh, Heaney and his wife and children had moved from, from the north of Ireland down into County Wicklow near uh, Dublin. Uh, O'Driscoll says, uh, does it surprise you that instead of writing poems about that new life, you ventured so deeply into the mythic terrain in North? And Heaney says, a line was definitely crossed with the poem, The Tolland Man. The minute I wrote, someday I will go to Aarhus, I was in a new field of force. It had to do with the aura surrounding that head, even in the photograph, it was uncanny, in the full technical sense. Opening P.V. Glob's book, The Bog People, was like opening a gate, the same as when I wrote my other poem, Bog Land. And again, the photos, <laughs> just find these photos, they're incredible. Um, not only in Glob's book, but in Van der Sanden's, where uh, many of them are, are newer photos. Um, uh, O'Driscoll asks what brought him to Glob's book in the first place, and Heaney says, It was, as Edward Thomas says, the name, only the name, The Bog People. I bought it as a Christmas present for myself in 1969, the year that it was published, but the minute I opened it and saw the photographs and read the text, I knew there was going to be a yield from it. I mean, even if there had been no northern troubles, no man-killing parishes, I would still have felt at home with that peat-brown head, an utterly familiar countryman's face. I didn't really go back to the book because it never left me, and it still hasn't. Um, O'Driscoll says, can you remember the circumstances of writing any of the bog poems? Did you write them with the photographs from the glob book spread out in front of you? And Heaney says, there were a few of them, bog, queen, and punishment in particular, where the information and speculation in the text were vital elements. There's no photo of the bog queen, only a quotation about a body being found on Lord Moira's estate in the late 18th century. I have, a, I have an especially happy memory of writing Bog Queen because it was the first time in my life, believe it or not, that I'd spent a whole uninterrupted workday on a poem. Before we moved to Wicklow, you know, my time wasn't particularly my own. There was always the Queen's job or the school or the training college or greeting papers or having to go see parents at the weekend, or whatever. But in Glanmore, that day, I learned to shift the emphasis, found myself free to regard poem work as the day job. It was a weekday and what I still thought of as term time, but I started in the morning and kept at it until dark. The Tolland Man poem, on the other hand, was written a couple or three years before that, as I mentioned, when we'd gone to Kerry for an Easter break, and it was done late at night when the kids were in bed. 
O'Driscoll says, was the difficulty with punishment, political more than literary. And Heaney says, that's not how I would put it, because that makes it sound as if I were, quote, addressing the situation in Northern Ireland, end quote. Admittedly, I addressed the situation when I introduced different bog poems, at readings and so on, although I now realize that it would have been better for the poems and for me, and for everybody else, if I had left them without that sort of commentary. What Anna Sweer would have called the poem's biological right to life was the point, and remains the point, and I never had the slightest doubt about them in that regard. The difficulty in getting punishment written and finished was expressive, as much a matter of sound and syntax, as a matter of self-examination, as much to do with shaping the thing as telling about me, it involved discovering how to be true to my ear and true to the elements I was working with, how to take a stand between the tar-black face of the peat-bog girl and the tarred and feathered women in the news reports. And, <coughs> excuse me, um, O'Driscoll says, in general, how do you react to negative criticism? Has your attitude, attitude towards it changed over time? Because, of course, North received a great deal of criticism for supposedly fetishizing violence or making the, the violence of Northern Ireland seem almost inevitable by connecting it with Iron Age violence and making it seem uh, simply like uh, an original sin that cannot be avoided, I think the idea was. Um, and Heaney says, uh, necessarily, yes, it has changed. I've been overwritten with praise and to a lesser extent with blame. I've had time to soak up the advantage of the former and I've learned to inspect the latter to see if it's salutary objection or just shitty backlash. But with regard to the negative stuff, there are times when it's a case of the redress of criticism, when you're being given penalties because the critic thinks you've had too much praise. And more and more there are occasions when the main purpose of it is to draw attention to the commenter or the columnist rather than to the work in question. Ted Hughes used to say, completely unfazed, the beginning of celebration is the beginning of execration. And I've already quoted Pound's instruction to the neophyte, one of my favorites, which is to pay no attention to the criticism of those who have not themselves produced notable work. O'Driscoll says, you've mentioned visits to Maiden Castle and the Dorchester Earthworks as among the inspirations for the, for the poem Bone Dreams. How much of North as a whole is derived from actual tours of archaeological sites or exhibits? And Heaney says quite a bit. There's a poem near the start of the book about visiting Belderg in County Mayo, the place that's known these days as the Cheyed Fields. There's an interpretive center there now, but when we were guided round by the archaeologist Seamus Caulfield in 1972, there was only bare heather bog, 
The actual visit to the Tolland man, in Silkeborg, incidentally, rather than Arhus, took place after the poem was written, but on that same visit in 1973 I saw the Grabal man in the museum at Arhus. Then there was the Viking Dublin exhibit in the National Museum, based on the dig being done by Brendan O'Riordan at the Wood Cay site. And here's a nice uh, comment Heaney has about politics. Uh, he's talking about his... Uh, uh, O'Driscoll asks him, how did you feel poetically and politically about uh, uh, Thomas Kinsella's poem, uh, Butcher's Dozen, and its scornful satire in response to the Widgery Tribunal on Bloody Sunday? And... This is Heaney's response. I had mixed feelings. The anger was salutary and justified, and the hurl of rage in the couplets never lets up. I admired, or better say, I envied that. It was blazing with hatred for the imperial cast of mind, and that again was exhilarating, not just because of the cover-up by the widgery, but primarily because of the shootings by the paratroopers. And here, I really don't think it's necessary to know what the Widgery Tribunal was, only that Heaney is responding to a very obvious piece of political poetry by a very great poet, Thomas Kinsella, that he admired, and uh, the hesitation he feels even about a great poet taking this up, the subject up, and doing so very well. Heaney says, and yet, and yet, there were furious characterizations of the Unionist Protestant collective in the North that seemed too stereotypical, a tilt towards the kind of bigotry the poem was scarifying. I found myself elated by the attack on the hypocrisy of the Widgery reports, and uneasy about the caricature of the Protestants, because at the time some of my best friends, etc. Soon after, Butcher's Dozen appeared in 1972, I remember John Montague and Tom Kinsella and myself assembled for a reading in a club at Clenard up on the Falls Road. John Montague read A New Siege, his poem about the confrontations in Derry in 1969 that led to the establishment of the Free Derry Zone in the Bogside. And I read God knows what, but Tom Kinsella certainly read from Butcher's Dozen. No doubt Kinsella was right to scorn the criticism that his poem was unhelpful, true as the criticism may have been in some quarters, but it was more than unhelpful. There was a danger in it, like a lick of flame. And um, where Heaney is elsewhere hesitant, not just in his poetry, but in these interviews, hesitant to talk about why he didn't write more politically, um, I think he gives his best answer there when he is able to talk about someone who did write overtly politically and his own reservations about that. Um, here he is talking about life at home uh, in his cottage in Glenmore. Uh, O'Driscoll says, despite young children running about, were you able to find a place to work in your small house? And this is just a nice picture of where Heaney was writing his poems. He says, 
The cottage had a sitting room upstairs, and that's where I, I ensconced myself. There was a low, tongue-and-groove ceiling, all hutch and hatch. It was both a chain-smoker's den and a hermit's hut. But once you went downstairs, there was no escaping the cubs in the lair, so to speak. The best statement about that was Robert Lowell's understatement when he called with us en route from the Kilkenny Arts Week in 1975. And Robert Lowell said, You see a lot of your children. And he says he got it in one. O'Driscoll says, North opens with one of your best-loved poems, Moss Bawn Sunlight, a tribute to your Aunt Mary. Was she at ease with the idea of your having become a poet? And this is his mother's sister, his Aunt Mary. Heaney says, I'm not sure she ever entirely took it aboard. There was something in our relationship, whatever it was, that stood still, by which I don't mean that the relationship was immature or inconsiderable. For years she was crippled with, arth with arthritis and eventually had to have her bed brought downstairs into what had been our sitting room. Before that, my brothers would carry her upstairs in her chair every night, but one by one they got married and left the house, so that arrangement just wasn't possible any longer. My memories of those years in the 1970s, before she had to go into special care in the Mid-Ulster Hospital, are of arriving with Marie and the kids from Wicklow, and greeting first of all my mother and father and sister Anne in the living room, and only then going in to sit with Mary. Not a lot getting said or needing to be said, just a deep, unpathetic stillness and wordlessness a mixture of lacrimae rerum and deo gratias. Something in me reverted to the child I'd been in Mossbon. Something in her just remained constant, like the past gazing at you calmly without blame. She was a tower of emotional strength, unreflective in a way but undeceived about people or things. I suppose all I'm saying is that I loved her dearly. And uh, O'Driscoll says, you mentioned earlier that you began working on Mossbawn Sunlight in California. Can you remember how it evolved? Did you sense from the start that it was one of your best poems? And Heaney says, evolved is a strong word for it. The first trace was a few lines trying to describe a straggle of fodder across our yard after snowfall. When the hay was being carried in for the cows, there'd be a little trail of it left between the stack and the byre door. Mary used to milk the cows in that byre, and, in my mind, she was the familiar spirit of the hay in the yard. And eventually, that straggle of fodder stiffened on snow ended up in another poem, and Mary would pass from the frost into the sunlight, from the yard into the kitchen. I can even remember the first time I read Moss Bond, Sunlight in Public, which must mean that I had a special feeling from it from the start. And that's a poem that I actually don't remember at all. Um, so it's nice just to hear him speak well of a poem, and it's going to make me want to go back and look for it.
Um, Here, Heaney is again talking about the troubles. He says, What I felt at the beginning of the troubles was what any poet would have felt in the circumstances, a certain undefined accountability. Implicated in the politics, yes, but without any real appetite for the political role. Federico Garcia Lorca, I imagined, felt much the same, but he was also on my mind in 1969 because of the Madrid interlude. This is when Heaney and his family travel uh, through France and Spain. The Madrid interlude was part of the journey I was making thanks to the Somerset Mom Award. I had brought a book of Lorca's poems to France and had been translating some of the short lyrics as a preparation for my trip to Castile. I also remember being lifted by the glamour and drive of his essay on the Duende. I think that Lorca was implying there that poetry requires an inner flamenco, that it must be excited into life by something peremptory, some initial strum or throb that gets you started and drives you farther than you realized you could go. That would certainly tally with my own experience. And this is something that Heaney mentions an awful lot, um, that uh, on the one hand, he wants to make, and I think he's mentioned it already in these episodes, on the one hand, he wants to make poetry uh, a discipline. He wants to make sure he gets to the desk every day. But at the same time, he has a religious feeling, almost a holdover of Catholicism, about writing poetry in which he believes that he has to be pushed into it and inspired by it somehow. Um, and there's the push and the pull of, of both of those things. Uh, and this is a wonderful uh, section here where he talks about going to the Prado. Um, O'Driscoll says, in your poem, Summer 1969, you view the Goyas in the Prado while the troubles are, are brewing back home in Ireland. Was your interest in a painter like Goya given an additional impetus by the fact that he confronted political violence head-on? And Heaney says, to answer you in American, you're damned right it was. I'm glad that that's what Heaney thinks American is. Uh, uh, Goya's painting, The Shootings of the 3rd of May, is a picture with the force of a fuselage. It was Bloody Sunday. All the same, I went into the Prado as anybody would do, to delight and instruct myself, in fact. In fact, in those days, Hieronymus Bosch's The Garden of Earthly Delights hung near the entrance. I wasn't there to study examples of art in a time of violence. I was there just to look, and to be in the presence of masterworks that stood their ground and, in a way, steadied you and settled you. Goya's self-portraits, for example, but the so-called black paintings had the force of terrible events, visionary catastrophe, the scarlet blood in the picture of Saturn devouring his children, the levitation of the witches in the picture of the witches' Sabbath. All that dread got mixed, mixed up in me. 
got mixed in with the slightly panicked, slightly exhilarated mood of the summer as things came to a head in Derry and Belfast. And O'Driscoll says, you found Goya instructive. And Heaney gives the great response, I found him overwhelming. The scale of the shootings picture, for one thing, is unexpected. It's big. You're up against it in many ways. It can make you real. And I suppose there was something about the whole torrid feel of those July days that was supercharged and ominous. We were staying in a small flat with Marie's sister and her husband and our two children. Toys on the floor, tortillas in the pan, toreadors on the television. Then, as I mentioned in the poem, there was a fish market down below with lorries starting to arrive from Galicia and wherever at three or four every morning a whole hullabaloo of shouting and revving and banging and horn-blowing, and then, too, the bullfights, with all the dry mouth and dream danger that bullfights entail. When I look back on it, the Goyas were just another element in the phantasmagoria. The sun beat down on everything else, but the Prado was cool, so it was somber to the soul of the rest of the holiday. And, let's see, uh, O'Driscoll asks him about a poem like Singing School, and he says, In the first poem of the sequence, you talk about your six-year billet as a boarder in St. Columns College in Derry. I wonder to what extent, in writing it, you were conscious of Joyce's, a portrait of the artist as a young man. Could Stephen Dedalus's experience in Klongaus be said to parallel your experience in St. Columbs. And Heaney says it certainly would. When it comes to Catholic boarding schools of the late 19th century and early to mid-20th century, it's very much a one-story-fits-all situation. I should emphasize all the same that St. Columbs was mercifully free of sexual molestation from either the staff or students. It was the usual monastic regime Mass in the morning, masturbation at night, classroom in the daytime, and study hall scriptorium in the evening. Cold water shaves, cold weather playgrounds. And he has a, a, a good he has a good few pages talking about his friend Seamus Dean and um there's a nice nice section in here where he just talks about his friendship with Seamus Dean. O'Driscoll says, After you had moved south and Seamus Dean was teaching in Dublin, did you feel pressured by him to be more political in your poetry? And Heaney says, To say yes to that would be to overstate, but to say no would be to misrepresent the reality of the situation. A friendship, you know, especially one that involves writers with similar backgrounds and preoccupations, is a field of force. There's mutuality, a happy shadowing and coloring of minds. You wake to different things in yourself and the world just by coming alive in the company of different friends. At the time, I was as susceptible to the mythic Ted Hughes as to the mordant Seamus Dean. I didn't feel pressured by him. I felt extended, awakened, 
called upon to take in more of the northern experience that we both shared. We discovered that we were poets together again, and for a few years the careless rapture was actually recaptured. And one last passage here where he talks about Ted Hughes. O'Driscoll says, As for the mythic Ted Hughes, did he encourage you to publish a book called Bog Poems with his sister's his sister Olwyn Hughes's Rainbow Press. Did he encourage you, for that matter, with the poems themselves? And that's true. If you go looking for uh, a book by Seamus Heaney called Bog Poems, uh, this is the one that you will find. I think they're only available as collector's items now. But for a long time, I had no idea what this was and why there, why, uh, whether these poems were separate from North or not. Uh, but it was one of those limited edition things. And Heaney tells this nice story about Hughes. Uh, he encouraged me with the poems in one very particular way. There was a Poetry International event in London, 1974 or thereabouts, and the Dutch poet Judith Hertzberg was present. Judith was a friend of Sonia Landweer and Barry Cook, so she had spoken to me in the course of the evening when we read together. But at the end of the evening, she told me that Ted Hughes had instructed her to pay special attention to my reading and to listen in particular to the bog poems. And that information, as you can imagine, did me a lot of good. I knew Ted liked the poems, but his commendation of them behind backs, as it were, sealed the thing. I imagine that's how Ted and Olwyn regarded the publication with Rainbow, a seal of approval. It's certainly how I regarded it. We all got along easily, and Olwyn had a house on Chetwind Road, and on several occasions in those years I'd be invited there after readings. Everything and everybody got a good sifting on those occasions, but the bog poems passed. And O'Driscoll says, Were you and Ted Hughes close friends by the mid-70s? Would you have exchanged work? And Heaney says, I could hardly say that we exchanged work. I would send Ted a poem or two if I was writing to him, and he might enclose one of his when he wrote back. Nor could I say that we were close friends at that stage. I felt free in his company. I felt trusted and on the right wavelength with him. And that to me was a privilege, a sort of change of life. Ted's work had had an almost magic effect on me in the beginning. And so to get to know the man uh, responsible for these poems was a big thing. And to feel his approval of me was a precious thing. You don't always need to have your poems workshopped, if you know what I mean, in order to get help as a poet. Just being treated as an equal by the poets you especially honor can affect you inestimably. It feeds your confidence and makes you feel that bit more creative. And we will leave it here for now. It went on a little longer because of uh, the bog body introduction. Uh, but I hope uh, this has been worthwhile. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com.
Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.